If you have your Bibles, join me in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, chapter number one. Nehemiah chapter number one. What do you think is the number one thing that is missing from the American church? There's a number of things I think we could list, but what do you think is the most important? What is something that is missing from, especially in America, many Christians' lives? Um... Well, I hope not. <laughs> um, even Christians who have a God-given vision, something for many is missing. I believe it's the necessary first step. Once you begin to walk down the path towards God's purpose for your life, the first thing, a foundational thing we all need, it's prayer. We need prayer. We're going through a series on vision. And today, we're talking about the process begins and how especially prayer plays a part in the believer's life. I want to introduce you to a man named Harold. Now, I know Brother Harold is here, um, but this is not the man that we're talking about. Though there is some similarities. <laughs> I love you, Brother Harold. <laughs> this is Harold. Harold is 101 years old in this picture. Taken a couple years back, uh, Ford did a promotional story on him a couple years ago because he was one of the very few people that are still alive today that drove an original Model T right when it came out. So they brought out a Model T for him to ride in. Then he got to ride in that new Ford Mustang, Mach-E. They did some videos, and they showed his expression in those videos. In the Model T, you know, it kind of just putters along, right? I would love to have a Model T. That would be amazing. Um, uh, but it's not going to burn rubber. Can I get it right? You all know that. Um, you know, you're not going to take it down 287 and keep up, right? You, you might die. Um, but then he got the Ford Mustang, and his facial expression in that video was quite remarkable compared to the other. I share this story because I think I've spent most of my life in church treating prayer like the Model T. It gets you there, but you're just kind of putting along. It's a nice ride, but I'm convinced, hey, Christian, that God has designed me and you, to experience the rush and thrill of prayer much more like that Mustang. When I went to Michigan for my dad's 70th birthday, I got to drive one of those Mustangs. Now, I've driven sports cars before, but I've never driven one like that. Um, it had supercharged V8 in it. Um, the noise it made when you turned it on, I'm telling you, it's just manly. You know, it makes Tim Allen grunt. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I got to drive one of those. And let me tell you, I drove it in the confines of the law. It was amazing. 
amazing. We had a blast. That thing could go from a zero to a lot in a little. The mega horsepower engine took us for a ride. For many American Christians, our prayer life has the power of a Model T. But God is calling, hey Christian, I believe, including your preacher, God is calling all of us to something more powerful. This should be our thought as we read this passage today. This should be our thought as we read passages like this one. Hebrews 4.18, the theme verse for the song we just sang, says this, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Uh, Prayer doesn't have to be um, a scared thing. Uh, Prayer doesn't have to be a timid thing. The Bible gives us permission to go boldly to God himself. I believe this is what God is saying to all of us today. I've created you to experience the thrill of communion with me. This is what God is saying to us. He wants us to experience the thrill of conversation with God himself. Of crying out to him. Of hearing our cries and answering our prayers. Of him manifesting his power in and through our lives. So that we can see real change happen. He's saying I've created you to live through prayer. In our story today we see one of the most powerful prayers recorded in all of Scripture. Let's see the role that prayer has in vision. Look with me at verse number 1, Nehemiah. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant that are left in the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. And mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I'm grateful that under Holy Spirit inspiration, God thought that we needed to read that prayer. Because here's what it says. And said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear be attentive, thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set 
my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants, who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Let's pray. God, we love you. I thank you, Lord, for this time around your word. I pray that you will allow this message to impact hearts and minds. Help us to become more like you today. In your name I pray. Amen. Number one, when you get a vision, what do you do? The first thing you do is you let the burden touch your heart. One ordinary day, Nehemiah bumps into some of his kinsmen. And they have a conversation about a place that Nehemiah had actually never been. A conversation between Nehemiah and his brothers. And he says, tell me about the homeland. Tell me about the people there. The reason Nehemiah is asking about this is because about 140 years before this day, in the year 586 B.C., under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians come into Jerusalem and tear everything down. They tear down the walls, the homes, and they tear down Solomon's temple. The Babylonians had attacked the Jews and completely demolished the city. The Babylonians then took Jewish people captive, took them away from their homeland, and held them bondage for a long time. They were in Babylon, and this is now where Nehemiah is in Persia because the Persians had taken over Babylon. Decades later, 50,000 Jews or so moved back to Jerusalem to rebuild. We're going to rebuild the city we love. They're going to rebuild the homeland. We're going to try to make a better future. The problem is, They couldn't get anything moving, and they found themselves stalled and completely deadlocked. In other words, with no wall and with no gates, there's absolutely no protection from outside forces that would uh, come and attack time and time again. So it was impossible for them to rebuild. There's already no jobs, no economic system, no leadership, no direction. There's no confidence. What do you do, though, when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you see something that bothers you deeply and you can't take it anymore? Here's what Nehemiah does. Look at verse number four. After hearing this news, and it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. When I heard these things, When I heard about the devastation, when I heard about the hopelessness of my people, Nehemiah admits I had to sit down and cry. He's saying it crushed me, it broke my heart. What's so interesting to me is to think that about Nehemiah, when he heard this news, it touches his heart to a point. It affects his emotions. The Bible tells us in the last verse of the chapter that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. Now, you may say, what in the world is a cupbearer? A cupbearer 
um, was someone who had this, probably the second most trusted role in all of the kingdom. His job was to be the taste tester. Whenever lunch came, he would taste test all the food. Whenever the king got a glass of wine, Nehemiah would drink from the glass first. He did this in order to protect the king. Because in those days, people wanted to overthrow kingdoms. And one of the ways they did this was by poisoning the king. And so here's Nehemiah drinking and eating the king's stuff. But he was also always around the king. So he would hear conversations about battle plans. He would hear conversations about trusted advisors. He would hear conversations about the business of the kingdom. So he was one of the most trusted men in all of the kingdom. Nehemiah had a good job, but it carried with it a lot of risks. This isn't abnormal to many people in our culture today. Nehemiah was about a thousand miles away from his homeland. And he was actually living a pretty good and comfortable life in the palace. Think about it. He's eating the same food as the king. Pretty good stuff, right? The best of the best. They never run out of ketchup in the kingdom. You know what I'm talking about? It's always there. Um, he, he's the one that gets to watch the big TV screens, right? Come on, use your imagination. Um, he's the one that gets the, the chariots with the spinning rims. You know what I'm talking about? Come on, y'all. This guy is probably posting selfies every now and then on social media. Hashtag blessed to serve. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know about you, but sometimes I can get too comfortable where I am. I can let what I have cloud my vision of what should be. I can let the blessings become an obstacle to what I could be doing. Nehemiah is right next to the king. Nehemiah has a position that has power. With the position and power probably comes a lot of financial gain. He could have used all of that to be an excuse to do what a lot of us do. I mean, even today we woke up to news to another shooting. And then we heard news of other shootings. We hear news in church all the time. We need Sunday school teachers. We need children's workers. We hear news all of the time about people in other countries that need food. Shoot, we're, we're hearing news all the time now about people living next to us that need food. And we hear all of this bad news that many of us respond the exact same way. I'll pray about it. And then we walk away. Never to do anything. Can I, hear me, hear me, hear me. That is not biblical prayer. Can I be honest with you? And it has become a terrible testimony for Christians Go to social media and see the tragedies and see all of the Christians that say thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. And yet nothing changes. But if God's people really prayed, things would change. Things couldn't stay the same if God's people really prayed. Nehemiah 
starts the prayer the right way. He doesn't let the tragedy just be something that's a blip on the radar. The burden touches his heart. It breaks him down. A man that wasn't allowed to be upset in front of the king. A man whose emotions had to be in check all of the time because of the position that he held. Sits down and cries because of what he hears. He doesn't let what he has. He doesn't let the position that he holds keep him from doing something about it. Hey, friend, this entire series, last week we detailed a hundred different things that we want to accomplish in our church, but all, none of those things will be accomplished if all we do is act like the people on Facebook that say thoughts and prayers. The burden must first touch our hearts. They're, the burden must weigh on us. The empty seats in the room must bother us, Christian, church member. The empty seats represent people that could be here, that should be here, to hear about our Savior, Jesus Christ, and yet for whatever reason, they are not. And that should bother each and every one of us to a point that it affects our emotions, to a point that we have no other option but to, to sit and cry when he heard the news, he sat down, he broke down, and he started to cry. I would ask you, what breaks your heart? What is it that burdens you? Maybe for you it's the plight of hurting children. Maybe it's those struggling with addiction or homeless, homelessness. Maybe it's feeding the hungry. What breaks your heart, burdens your soul? What do you do when you can't take it anymore? You sit down and cry. Number two, you kneel down to pray. Nehemiah says this, For some days I mourned and fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. Listen to me, church. If it's big enough to cry about, it's big enough to pray about. Sometimes, I just, and I, I've done it before, we say the most insulting things to our God. We say things like, well, all we have left to do is pray. Like it's a last option. Like it's our last resort. Like, oh, okay, we've done everything else we can think to do. Let's pray about it now. Sometimes we just say the most insulting things. Can you imagine God sitting in heaven going, oh, well, man, all you can do now is pray? I mean, it's only down to me now, right? All you've got is me, the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God. Me. The all things are possible with me, God. And all you can do is pray. God has created us, church, to experience the thrill of being with him in prayer. 
For us as the church together, God is saying, I've not created you to putter along in a casual, monotonous, religious, cultural way. Just going through the motions of church life, just bowing your heads and praying these different safe points, but never thinking about who we're talking to. Never comprehended that he has created our minds to be focused solely on him. Maybe heaven is shouting, do you realize who you're talking to now? Do you realize who you've gathered together before right now? The holy, holy, holy God of the universe. We must connect the need for prayer to the outcome of our vision. That's what Nehemiah does. I want to give you the different points of this prayer. The first thing, the most important thing, is he starts with praise. Just read verse 5. He praises God. Nehemiah begins his prayer by exalting the Lord. He praises God for his superiority. He praises him for his strength. He praises him for his sovereignty, his sacredness, and his sincerity. And yes, I was proud of myself for the alliteration there. He praises God for who he is. The foundation of every prayer should be that we start with praise. Most of the time, though, our prayers just start with requests. Hey, God, I need this. Hey, God, can you give me that? And listen, there are parts of our prayers that are definitely going to be petitions. We'll see that here in a moment. But God actually tells us that this should be a part of our prayer, praising God. Don't miss what Psalm 27, 4 says. One thing I have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The primary purpose for prayer is not to get something, but to be with someone. The the purpose of praying today isn't so that we can get something from God, but so that we could commune with him. Realizing that changes the way you pray. Dwelling with God is what it's all about. It's about gazing upon the beauty of our God. Can I ask you a question? Do you only pray because God is useful to you? Or do you pray because God is beautiful to you? How you answer that question is going to affect every prayer you pray. I want us to seek God because we want to see him, to know him, to love him, to thank him, and to ascribe him praise. Like a lover who just wants to be with their beloved, who wants their beloved to know how beautiful they are. Every prayer you pray should begin and be filled with praise. Secondly, it should be seen in our perseverance. The Bible tells us that Nehemiah prayed day and night. He got before the Lord and prayed until the answer came. That is the kind of praying we need to see demonstrated in our day. Not the kind of prayer that will stop after a time or two, but persistent prayer. The kind of prayer that goes to God and stays before God until it gets what it has come after. 
This is what Jesus calls us to do in Luke 18. He tells us to pray with importunity. It means persistence. After all, prayer that is born out of a genuine burden cannot be satisfied until it is answered. If we can pray for something once or twice, then forget about it. We should ask ourselves whether or not we are truly praying from a burdened heart. You know, you see burden when there's a parent praying for a wandering child. You you see burden when there's a loved one praying for someone battling cancer. You see burden. What's so interesting to me about Nehemiah is this is actually the first of 12 prayers that we see him pray in Nehemiah. There's 12 prayers we know about. He could have prayed hundreds, maybe thousands. This is the first of 12 We see it at the beginning of his story. We see it all through the middle. And the last thing he's doing in the book is praying as he goes before God. What I love about him is that Nehemiah is a leadership genius. He is practical in every way. He studies. He strategizes. He casts vision. He delegates. He's a leadership genius. And yet everything he does begins with Friend, something that should mark Christians is that we just don't stop praying. Number three, penitence. In this prayer, Nehemiah gets serious about sin in a way that's totally foreign to most Christians in America. What is more common to us in the Bible Belt, uh, we come together in a gathering like this. We walk into church holding on to our sins. We sing songs. We say some prayers, listen to a sermon, and then leave holding on to the exact same sin, hardly even thinking about it. Sin that is keeping us from the real life God wants. Sin that is hiding God's blessings from us. And sins that is hurting our community of faith. We need to repent like Nehemiah did. Nehemiah made no attempt to excuse his own sin or the sins of Israel. He surveyed the grim record of Israel's past. He looked at the present failures of Israel, and he knew that he was not exempt from the blame. Consider with me that they had been taken into captivity 140 years before this. Nehemiah was born in captivity. He raised a prominence in a foreign land as a Jewish man. He could literally pass the buck of blame. He could have passed it on to his father, his grandfather, and all of his kinsmen that had now been dead and gone for a number of years. But he does not do that. He takes the blame on his own shoulders. It would have been easy for Nehemiah to look back and just blame everyone else. But he doesn't go around the blame. He says, Lord, I am wrong. I not only want to be a part of the answer, I confess that I have been a part of the problem. Nehemiah recognized that sin is not merely a stubborn refusal to obey certain rules, but it's also a defiant act of aggression, a personal rebellion against a holy God. He knows that they have acted very wickedly. He didn't try to candy coat his sin. He owned it and called it what it was. Friend, 
Every prayer that we pray needs to be full of confession and repentance. Trying to hide our sins from God is impossible. He knows about them all. We need to recognize that all sin, those things we have blatantly done, those things that we have carelessly committed, or those things that we have left undone, must be identified, and they must be confessed. Number four, promises. Nehemiah spends time in broken confession. He doesn't wallow in prolonged examination, though. He confesses his sins, and then he moves on to accepting God's promises that God has promised Israel. In this part of his prayer, Nehemiah recalls the words of Moses about the dangers of Israel's apostasy and their promise of divine mercy. His words are a skillful mosaic of great Old Testament warnings and promises with quotes from books like Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Psalms 130. What was the promise Nehemiah was getting at? It was twofold. First, if Israel disobeyed, they would be sent to a foreign land that had been fulfilled. The second part was that when the captivity was over, God would send them back to Jerusalem. They were still waiting for that to be fulfilled. Nehemiah prayed, Lord, the first part is true. We've disobeyed and we're in captivity. But Lord, you've promised to bring us back home, to protect us here. And that has not happened yet. I'm claiming your promise that you'll make it happen, God. Hey, friend, the better we know the word of God, the better we'll be able to pray with confidence in God's word. 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that we, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Christian, know God's promises. Not all of them in the Bible are for you, but there are plenty that you can hold on to, and the best way to pray is to pray the word of God back to God. Number six, partners. As Nehemiah prays, he reminds God that he isn't the only one involved in this prayer. He might have been the one destined to be the star of the show, but he knew that he needed a team. And so he prays to God to bring them together. Let me encourage you, friend, don't keep your prayers private. Let your prayers be made known and let other people start praying with you and maybe even for you. Pray together. Finally, petitions. Nehemiah finally gets around to what is on his heart. At this moment, he is merely praying for the Lord to give him grace in the sight of the king. He knows that to prevail with man, man must first prevail before the Lord. It has been said that prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but getting God's will done on earth. However, for God's will to be done on earth, he needs people to be available for him to use. Nehemiah is simply saying, here I am, Lord, use me. He knew that he would have to approach the king and request a three-year leave of absence. He, he knew that he was going to need the king's favor to enable this to be something that happened. And so he prays to God, give me grace in front of the king. Someone has said that the key word in the book of Nehemiah is so. It occurs 32 times. Again and again, Nehemiah assesses the situation. 
is moved by concern and is so compelled to the appropriate action. The true measure of our concern is whether or not we are willing to make a commitment to get involved. Martin Luther said, pray as if everything depends on God, then work as if everything depends on you. Number three, embrace providence. It's interesting to me that God ends this passage, or Nehemiah ends it under Holy Spirit inspiration. The last statement is not in the prayer. Nehemiah just adds this detail, and I appreciate it. Nehemiah simply says, I'm praying this way because I was the king's cupbearer. The final statement in Nehemiah seems to indicate that he felt the weight of his assignment. He knew that who he was and where he was was no accident to God or the vision that he had. He embraced where he was because of who he was. We need to embrace a few things. First, realize your position is no accident. Wherever you work, whatever position you hold in the church, it is no accident. Regardless of your position in life, school, work, church, you need to know that's not by accident. God has placed you where he has you for a purpose. Christian, God has never once had an accident, and he never will. And if you're obeying him, where you are isn't an accident. He has placed you where you are for his purpose. There are no accidents or coincidences. You are where you are for his glory and for God's use. The training you've received, the job you have, the ministry you're in has all led you to this point. God wants to use you. Hear me. God wants to use you. He does. Doesn't mean you have to preach. It doesn't mean that you even have to teach. But God wants to use you somewhere. Understand that your prosperity is no accident. Listen to me. Even though the Bible doesn't teach health and wealth doctrine, it doesn't mean that there are not going to be wealthy followers of Jesus. Wherever you are financially, that's not an accident. God has given to you what God has given to you for a purpose. And one of the purposes is to test your faithfulness with it. Because what God has given to you may be the exact thing God needs to get somebody else around you to him. The resources you have been given are not yours by luck. They have been given to you by the providence of God to be used for his glory. And then lastly, the power that you have is no accident. Listen, we live in a day and age of influencers. All right? If you go on Instagram, there are people that literally get paid to post certain products. Never under, I can never understand that. Never understand that. Um, Speedo called me and I said, no. <laughs> Aren't you glad? <laughs> I never understood that. They, they just, all they have to do is post. And we call them influencers. Hey, hey, Christian, the people with the real influence are those that are walking around with the Holy Spirit inside of them. If you're a Christian, that's you. You have been given the Holy Spirit, and as such, you have influence over other people. Friend, you don't have to become a pastor or a social media influencer to have influence. God has already given you influence with people. Use what God has given you. 
Let's end with this. Vance Havner said this. I thank God for the unseen hand, sometimes urging me onward, sometimes holding me back, sometimes with a caress of approval, sometimes with a stroke of reproof, sometimes correcting, sometimes comforting. My times are in his hand. All we need to do is be in a prayerful stance for God to use us. Hey, we're going to have an invitation in just a couple of moments. When was the last time you prayed? Can I ask, if you were to describe your prayers like a car, would it look more like a Model T or a Mustang? The Bible declares, come boldly to the throne of grace. I'm convinced every person in the room God has given a burden to. Have you taken that burden to God? Maybe today, like Nehemiah, your first step to begin the process is simply just to sit down and cry. Would you please stand? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time around your word. There are people here that have heard this prayer from Nehemiah. Help us to pray like this man. Fill us with a burden. Allow it to touch our heart. Let it hit our emotions.